Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival, or as we casually respond to it, call it TIFF. <laughs> it's tiff. just TIFF. That's, that's what we call it. That's what tiff, everyone tiff. calls it. So uh, we'll be talking about the films we want to see, uh, the film. But before we do, you know, we, we just moved this podcast to a new channel, Collider Weekly, which means we might have a lot of new listeners, a lot of people that aren't familiar with the show. So even though we've been doing TIFF for this will be year nine for me. Um, that means it's year eight for me. That's insane. Yeah. So we've been doing this for a while, but, and like every year we have our TIFF preview podcast, but you might be new to the show. You may not know what TIFF is about. Um, so we kind of wanted to fill, fill you in on what kind of festival it is, how it differs from other festivals, uh, and, and why we enjoy it so much. And then we'll, we'll talk a bit more specifically about films we're, we're going to see. And then we'll finish up with, uh, reader hot takes and recently watched. So, um, Briefly, TIFF uh, happens every September, uh, beginning of the month, and it's in Toronto, and it is basically, while there are other festivals surrounding it that actually come before TIFF, like the Venice Film Festival, the Telluride Film Festival, Toronto is the big launching pad. Um, Films may debut at Venice or Telluride. But Toronto is kind of seen as a mandatory stop if you want to be a serious player in the awards race. Um, I don't. I, th- I don't know how far back you have. To, I think you have to go back to Birdman, and that's like the lone exception in the last ten years to find a Best Picture winner that did not play at TIFF. Um, and it's really just a festival where just a lot of great movies play. Like this is where the studios have their prestige pictures. But honestly, they're at least two or three films like that end up on my top 10 were films I saw at TIFF. It's just a great festival. It's not like Sundance. Sundance is also a great festival, but it's more of a crapshoot. You don't really know what you're getting into. I, I kid you not, I did walk into the Duke thinking it was a comedy because I knew <laughs> nothing about it. And I'm like, ah, Duke, that's a funny name. Oh, what a surprise <laughs> in the first 10 minutes. I was like, oh, this is not a comedy. Um, it's a festival discovery. Sunday. Yeah, exactly. And like you can build buzz and you sort of talk to people and like, Oh, what are you seeing? Oh, I didn't know about that. Like, so like a film like beast of the Southern wild, which no one had heard of really going into it. Didn't have any stars really. Um, didn't, you know, no one knew who the director was became this major sensation because people at Sundance were talking about it. And that doesn't really happen so much at TIFF. TIFF is, you know the films you have to see because they have the biggest directors and the big stars and the prestige screenings. Like TIFF tells you the films that you have to see. And that's not to say that a smaller film can't break out or gain a little attention. That's kind of what happened to the King speech, but for the, and, and to, and to an extent last year with uh, green book, a film, neither of us saw at TIFF yeah, <laughs> because we skipped, we're, it. we skipped it. I was sick. I was, we were both, we both got sick last year. Yeah, <laughs> that was fun. fun. Try doing a film, a nine day film festival while you're sick. It's really fun. It's a blast. Yeah. I'm just going to be mainlining airborne while I'm, <laughs> while I'm at TIFF this year. Um, yeah. The, for the most part, you, you kind of get a sense of like, you know, the year before Green Book, we're like, okay, well, we're definitely seeing The Shape of Water. And, uh, Moonlight had kind of caught all of our attention with a great trailer. And then it got really good buzz out of, I think, tell your i think it played at venice um it yeah played either, i think it was telluride uh, yeah or, or telluride either way we uh one of our former colleagues saw it and was just raving about it and so you know when moonlight came to tiff we're like we have to see moonlight um so again tiff is not really it's not that like you won't be surprised by a movie but you kind of know what films you have to see and from there it's like does the film live up to my expectations or was it disappointing yeah, and that's not to say there aren't acquisition titles at TIFF. There are. Um, there are some indies there. Uh, to, like First and foremost, TIFF, just like the programming, there is a lot to see. Like They yes. program a lot of movies. Whereas Sundance programs a fair amount of movies, but it's not just like an overwhelming deluge where there's no way you could possibly see all the films in a certain category. Um, but at TIFF, there's a lot of films going to TIFF for a lot of different reasons. So, uh, you know, like Matt said, 
you know the films you need to see. That's kind of for our jobs, for um, you know, for reviews, and for you know, I do a lot of Oscar, Oscar, early Oscar prognosticating there, um, getting a jump on Buzz and stuff like that. So, um, like you know that you need to see The Shape of Water because that's Guillermo del Toro's next movie. You know that uh, you know Twelve Years a Slave. It's the um, you know this big. Uh, you know, um, slavery drama that's uh, garner- garnering a lot of buzz. Uh, you know, spotlight. It's you know, you know the subject matter. You know that that's probably gonna be a big thing. Arrival. You know, it's Amy Adams and Denis Villeneuve. Um, it's rare that you get a movie as small as I'm trying to think of like a Sundance. <laughs> what well, was like a Sundance breakout recently? Oh, like The Farewell. Like it's it's rare that a movie like The Farewell plays at TIFF. Um, the the acquisition titles at TIFF are a little different. Um, sometimes a little more commercial. Uh, I saw a movie there I loved years ago called The F Word uh, with Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan. The, the title was later changed to What If. Uh, just a really terrific romantic comedy and it just kind of went nowhere. <laughs> no one saw it, um, but it was great. Um, but yeah, the you know the the main. Uh, the main event, so to speak, at TIFF is the big splashy movies with the movie stars, with the famous directors, um, with the hot directors who maybe have one movie under their belt and, you know, you want to see what they're doing next. Um, and from an awards perspective, it's a very important stop, not necessarily because uh, of the critics that are there. So you do that Telluride Venice, um, you know, uh, one, like double stop to build some critical buzz and Venice does have the red carpet and the photo calls, but TIFF is really big on red carpets and photos. So you will see a lot of pictures of celebrities walking red carpets at TIFF and that then combined with the critical buzz from Telluride and Venice, if they played both those festivals and also at TIFF gives those movies a really big visibility boost um, just to kind of put them on people's radars. Um, A movie that didn't do that was Green Book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it, it was just purely people who saw it at TIFF. There, it didn't. I didn't really see a ton of big splashy like red carpet stuff for Green Book. And like Matt said, we both skipped it last year because it sounded kind of lame, and it was. Yeah, we weren't fucking <laughs> wrong. It just ended up winning Best Picture. I, st- I stand by my appraisal of Green Book, but uh, it, it won Best Picture. So there you go. Um, yeah. So yeah, so we're going there. Chances are we, unless we get sick again. <laughs> Because I would have seen Green Book had I not been like ill for a day. Um, yeah. We chances are we will see the twenty next year's Best Picture winner at TIFF. It is very likely. Now there are a few major films that are not playing at TIFF. Uh, most notably, Scorsese's The Irishman is going to play at New York Film Festival. New York Film Festival always gets like one or two major movies that do not play at TIFF. Uh, so, for instance, like they'll get like. Uh, a mostly finished cut of Lincoln or they'll get ca- one year in 2013. They had it all. They had, they had a uh, inside Lewin Davis. They had captain Phillips. They had Nebraska, like t- New York film festival was pulled a ma- They had her. It was a major coup for New York film festival, but for the most part, New York film festival has like one or two movies <laughs> that, yeah. and and for some reason the festival lasts three weeks. Um, but yeah, and then the big movies that are skipping the festivals altogether this year are like, Sam Mendes' 1917, uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, unless it's like a late edition, and uh, Tom Hooper's Cats. You will believe, Adam. <laughs> the poster told me you will believe. I don't know. Best Picture nominee, Tom Hooper's Cats. Yes. Oh, gosh. Just make it happen, people. Oh, that's going to be a fun <laughs> podcast. All right. So, yeah. So, for the most part, there are going to be a lot of contenders. Uh, this year's TIFF, and we are going to try our best to see see as many of them as we can. And, and thankfully, you know, I've worked out a pretty good schedule this year. Um, and I would suppose, I guess, you know, thankfully, because of Venice and uh, Telluride, I don't have to kind of worry too much about a lot of these films being the first out the gate which has adds a lot of pressure and a lot of time constraints. Like, there are yeah. some stuff that's debut. Like, I think Jojo Rabbit is debuting at TIFF. Um, Mm -hmm. Knives Out is debuting at TIFF. Uh, But for instance, Joker had its premiere at Venice. And so now the first word on the Joker is out and we got a lot of, uh, a new term I will be employing that I heard from Twitter that I will be employing a lot is performative criticism. Not to say that the criticism, not to say that the criticism is not genuine or that it carries an agenda, but rather it uses a lot of superfluous adjectives in order to get noticed and drive traffic. 
And that's the first Joker hot take of 2019. That's not even a Joker hot take. Slider.com podcast. That's not even a Joker hot take. It's a hot take about the to- the hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming, or a lot of good-looking stuff. Um, do we want to dive into it? Do we want to dive into... Yeah, let's see some of the movies that we'll be seeing and reviewing. And Perry Nemiroff will also be reviewing films from the festival uh, for us this year. So you'll have those to look forward to. I'll be reviewing some movies. Matt will be reviewing a ton of movies. I'll be writing some Oscar dispatches uh, in terms of kind of like what are the Oscar chances of Ford versus Ferrari uh, after having seen it with my own eyes or Joker. Um, And then Steve, our editor in chief, will be doing uh, a billion interviews. So uh, you can look for that content on Collider.com rolling out over the next two to three weeks. So check back daily. One other thing to mention about TIFF is that it also plays kind of a cleanup role for Cannes. So if like a film was a big hit at Cannes, it'll usually pop up again at TIFF before it starts to roll out. So for instance, most of my first day at TIFF is just Cannes movies. It's a hidden life, Parasite, which won the Palme d'Or, and The Lighthouse. So three movies that played at Cannes. Yeah, and that's exactly my schedule on that first day as well. (laughs) Uh, And as a uh, something of a Terrence Malick stan, uh, I'm very much looking forward to a hidden life, but I, I man, can't believe I'm going back to a hit to, to, to the Malik well, because I've just been, I hated to the wonder. I nearly fell asleep in night of cups and I'm like, I'm done. I'm fucking done with Malik. But the story of a hidden <laughs> life about this conscientious objector in world war two is a really interesting story. And I, I think it's, it's worth checking out. And it's nearly three hours long as, as we would expect from Terrence Malik. <laughs> I'm very curious about it because it's a different film making team he's not working with emmanuel abezgi a cinematographer again and it's a non-american cast uh after his last few movies have been kind of you know star filled uh surprisingly enough um so it seems like a, a bit of a departure for him possibly which would be a a, a welcome reprieve i would say yes so the parasite that's the big one that like the the uh, like praise for it and buzz for it is deafening at this point it really is. It kind of feels like, I guess, to an even greater extent, it kind of reminds me of The Handmaiden, which also play, yeah. I think played at Cannes. Um, but that's sort of like a foreign film that a lot of people are going to see, and you're kind of worried. Like, do, who's releasing Parasite domestically? Is it is it Sony Pictures Classics? I believe it is, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how the how its release pans out. But I'm excited for, you know, it's a new Bong Joon-ho film. And even though, like, you know, my re- response to some of his, his films varies, I still think he's an immensely talented filmmaker. So while, you know, I, I love, like, Snowpiercer more than I like Okja I, or, or The Host, I still think, you know, his films are, are worth seeing. Oh, it's actually Neon that's releasing the film, which In, is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I I mean I'm a Bong Joon Ho fan. I didn't love Okja, um, but as I said, the the buzz on this one is crazy. And I've tried not to learn too much about it, other than it's about a family of scan art scam artists uh, living in South Korea. Um, yeah, I've, I've a, watched the trailer, and that's about it. Yeah, uh, it's in Korean. Um, and that's about all I know. So, and that's kind of how I like it. Uh, and you know, we'll we'll hopefully be able to bring you some more details soon. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about these can films, if you want to see a review, Gregory Elwood covered can for us earlier this year. So, if you want to check in the site, see what he said about a hidden life, parasite in the lighthouse, go for it. Those reviews are already on the site. Yeah. Um, if you want care what we think about it, we you know, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> yes, we'll be tweeting a lot during the festival. Yeah, uh, we'll get annoying. Um, <laughs> and so moving on, another film that played at Cannes that got uh, good reviews is Pain and Glory, the new Pedro Almodovar film, which I'm interested in. And, um, but then once you start getting into TIFF stuff, a film that hasn't really been getting that much attention, and it's a little surprising, is uh, The Personal History of David Copperfield, which is the new uh, Iannucci movie. Yeah, and I didn't see Death of Stalin, so I don't, <laughs> uh, like, I guess people like that. Did you did Death, you see yeah, and Death like of that? Stal- yeah, I saw Death of Stalin at TIFF, I think, and I was like really, really taken with it. I thought it was it. I mean, it's it's definitely it's Iannucci's wheelhouse, uh, which is it's a political story and people being petty and shitty to each other, and it's like the thing you get from the thick of it, from Veep, from uh, In the Loop, 
you know, you kind of know what you're getting if you know Ianucci, but I like, I like what he does. Uh, I'm curious to see how it applies to David, you know, to Dickens, as it were. Yeah, and Fox Searchlight picked the movie up a few weeks ago, so it has distribution because uh, it was going to be a, an acquisition title there. Um, so I'm curious about it. I, I'm curious how that Ianucci flavor translates to uh, you know the Victorian era. Um, so I think that one will be interesting. Um, Pain and Glory, the Almodovar. I'm not huge into Almodovar. But that movie got a lot of raves. Uh, was compared kind of to eight and a half. Uh, with Antonio See now, Banderas. now, now you're just turning me off of it. <laughs> <laughs> with Antonio Banderas giving uh, apparently just a wonderful performance, and and what's kind of a apparently uh, a semi autobiographical film about Pedro Almodovar uh, himself. Um, so that's another kind of buzzy one. And see, this is kind of how it goes. Like Pain and Glory is not some. Uh, you know, hip indie from an upstart. It's from a veteran filmmaker. And, uh, you know, The Lighthouse, it's the next movie from the guy who made The Witch. Um, yeah, and, you don't uh, usually get to make your debut at TIFF. Yeah. It's rare. Yeah, and if you do, it's because you probably made your debut in something else. So, for instance, Brie Larson's Unicorn Store did make its debut at TIFF as her directorial debut, but that's because she's Brie Larson and yeah. <laughs> had already won an Oscar for acting. Yeah. And then that movie took like two and a half years to come out or something like that. Well, do you want to talk about another film that we saw at TIFF that hasn't come out yet is uh, The Current War, <laughs> yes, which has now been true. recut into I, – I feel like every email I get now about The Current War is it's watchable now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, her, a Weinstein Company release that got uh, embroiled in that battle when the Weinstein Company went under with a lot of movie stars. Like we were there, we were at the world premiere of it. Yeah, it wasn't very. It. Good. It's a bad film, but yeah. maybe it's good now. I don't know. I'm kind yeah, of curious. I'm kind of curious to see the re-edited version in a way that I'm usually not with other films. Yeah, because I think the craftsmanship of the current war is actually like it's a very pretty looking film. It is. Um, Chung Hoon Chun uh, was the cinematographer, um, and I think Alfonso Gomez Rejon makes pretty or interesting looking films. Uh, the director. So, so I'd, I'd give it another shot if it's a recut version. I'm not saying it'll be great, but yeah, whatever. Um, but, you know, it's funny, you know, you talk about acquisition titles and there I can't really think of like, is there an acquisition title this year? Like, I remember a few years back there was Jackie and that didn't have acquisition. And that was a big mm-hmm. deal because it was Natalie Portman playing uh, Jackie Onassis Kennedy. And, you know, it, it we everyone wanted to be in that screening because they're like, oh, you know. What's, you know, who's going to pick this up? Is it worth picking up? And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, Portman's performance is so amazing. It's, you know, she's now the front runner, but what about Emma Stone and La La Land? And so it goes. Those kind of things crop up. I think the biggest acquisition title is probably Bad Education, the Hugh Jackman movie Mm. um, from Corey Finley. That one doesn't have distribution yet, but. and I don't know much about it. All you reminded me is that last year we saw the front runner at TIFF and that film <laughs> I didn't disappeared. See it. Oh, you it's didn't see D- it. It's on my DVR right now. I'm going to catch wow. up at some point. <laughs> it is, it is, it is solid. I will say it's not great. It's not terrible. It's just, it's solid. Yeah. It's a B film all the way down. And that's how some films at TIFF are. It's not a festival where everything's going to be a slam dunk. No, so. no, it's, there's some films and you just kind of, go into it and be like, all right, this is going to, is this going to wow me? Is this going to underwhelm me? Um, it's also, you know, Netflix is really have a, has a much bigger presence now with their films. Uh, last year we saw Roma there. Uh, this year they have a, have quite a few movies playing at TIFF as they start that, start to roll out that campaign. So this year we're seeing the two popes. We're seeing Dolomite is my name. Um, and we're seeing, well, gosh, what else is there? The Laundromat. Laundromat. Marriage Story. Oh, yeah, that's right. Marriage Story. I forgot that that's a Netflix That's a Netflix one. movie. Netflix is making waves. I remember it, uh, I guess last year was the first big splashy year for Netflix there with Outlaw King, um, that opening night. And they debuted that new kind of opening logo thing that mm-hmm. they do now. Right. Um, and that was that was a pretty big deal. But now it's just, you know, and then they had Roma, obviously, last year. Uh, and now it's just kind of like the doors are wide open. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah, sure. They're, they're so wide open that not all Netflix movies are even coming 
to Ted. Yeah. The, uh, the King, the new uh, David Michaud film starring Timothy Chalamet, it played at Venice, but it's not coming to TIFF. No, uh-uh. which was interesting. Uh, although it gave strong the Outlaw King vibes from that trailer, and the response out of Venice has not been super positive. So, yeah. Although I still want yeah. to see it, so there you go. Fine. See I'm just then. saying. I'm just saying again. Performative criticism. <laughs> when when your film festival has to tell me how long the standing ovation is. That is the definition of performing criticism. You're like, hey, look how long we're standing and clapping. That's how much we like this film. It's not about the film. It's about you at that point. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so let's, let's, let's change tax. What film are you most excited to see at TIFF this year? Oh, it's got to be Knives Out. Same. I wanted to be like, oh, we could take this in a different direction. It's Knives Out. It's Knives <laughs> no, Out. It's we're both out. we're both Ryan Johnson fans. And if you if you're if you're someone who uses the term ruin Johnson, you may want to stop <laughs> listening to this podcast. It may not be for you. I'm gonna wager to say if you're someone who uses the term ruin Johnson, I would bet pretty good money that the only Ryan Johnson movie you ever saw was The Last Jedi. That's also probably true. I would be surprised if you someone, were someone out here being like, I've been a ruined Johnson fan since Brick. <laughs> a ruined Johnson hater since Brick. I hate all his movies. I hate that. I hate the Brothers Bloom. Don't get me started on Looper. He ruined noir, and then he ruined con artists, and then he ruined time travel. Now he's going to ruin murder mysteries. Ruin <laughs> Johnson. Well, what I really like about Ryan Johnson is that he's very upfront with, like, I think he kind of likes packaging in a very specific genre. Like, like I said, Brick is like built to be a noir. Like that is supposed to evoke noir film, noir tendencies. Um, Brothers Bloom is structured like a con otters movie to the fact that, uh, to the point that the film itself is a con on you, the audience member at certain points. Um, and Looper is a time travel movie, like, and explores all aspects of time travel and ramifications of time travel. And then Knives Out literally says on the poster, a whodunit uh, by Ryan Johnson. Right. So it's, he's, Well, he's you not know, just conscious of genre. He's making, he tends to make genre movies about the genre they're in. So yeah. it's not just he makes a run of the mill con artist film. Blethers Bloom is a con artist movie about con artists, and it's a con on the audience. Um Last Jedi is a Star Wars movie about Star Wars movies. Like that yeah. film is very consciously delving into what it means to be a Star Wars film in a way that I think like something like The Force Awakens is more about the iconography about Star Wars and doesn't question it at any point. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I don't want to get too much in the weeds on Star Wars. Uh, oh, no, we'll I, do that so, later. That's coming, yeah. people. You can you can just <laughs> buckle up for that shit. The hot takes. Oh, man, they're going to be so searing. Um Knives Out, I mean, that cast is impeccable. Uh, I really love Ryan Johnson's team of collaborators. I like Steve Yedlin, his cinematographer, who's just super nerdy about, like, his shots are mathematical. Like, the amount of light, the angles, like, he comes up with formulas to, like, mathematically, like, the number of the sh kind of shot that he's looking for and the amount of light that's coming through and the camera position and everything like that. Has he tried uh, the Janice Kaminsky approach where he just blares a fill light <laughs> through the back window of every setting? Cause I think that's also a valid approach. <laughs> that's also something you do is just put lights everywhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I'm really excited to see what he does with the whodunit genre. Like, cause he doesn't strike me as someone who's just going to be like, Oh yeah, it's just a whodunit. Like, you know, People are going to wonder who did the thing, and then you're going to find out who did the thing, which is how Ready or Not, and I talked about it a little bit on the podcast a few weeks ago, and it's fine, but it doesn't do anything different. It's very much about like, oh, yeah, these are the rules, and this is what happens, and this is how it happens, and the direction isn't super ambitious or anything like that. It's just a little um, – it's a bit rote. That doesn't mean it's not fun, but it didn't leave a strong impression on me other than the lead performance. Um, with Knives Out – I. I feel pretty confident in in knowing that Ryan Johnson is going to do something different and interesting with the genre here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think when when Ryan Johnson kind of knows what he's going to do, and the fact that he wanted to do this movie before moving into more Star Wars is also, I think, a huge vote of confidence. The fact that he's like, no, I have enough confidence to be like, I can make this smaller film and still come back to Star Wars, and it'll be it'll be there waiting for me. Uh, there yeah. are some directors when once they go to blockbusters, they don't come back. They don't go back to smaller films. Um, and I'm glad that Ryan Johnson's like, no, I, I can still make a whodunit if I want. 
Is Jack, is there an intruder? Yes, there's, there's danger, and he's just, every bark is, don't you come in here. <laughs> don't you come in here. <laughs> good buddy Jack. So, yes, my good buddy Jack, who is barking at probably someone dropping off a package. <laughs> the house is protected, so that's what the barking you hear in the background is. So what's your second most anticipated after? Um, you know, my second most anticipated probably would have to be, um, hmm, it's a tough one. I'd say Just Mercy. Um, because I really, um, Destin Daniel Cretton, who previously directed Short Term 12 and The Glass Castle, uh, this is a story based on a true story about uh, a civil rights uh, attorney who defends a death row inmate. And just the pairing of, of just a monumentally talented actor like Michael B. Jordan with a storyteller like Cretton. And I think what makes Cretton stand apart is, even though I didn't love, I love Short Term 12, I, I had mixed feelings on Glass Castle. But he's a director that really cares about the trauma his characters have suffered. And he really, he doesn't exploit it. He doesn't make it maudlin. He doesn't make it sappy. But he understands it in a way that's both compassionate and honest. And I think that gives him a unique voice among storytellers. And I think with this kind of material that's that looks like very strong material, this doesn't seem like, oh, it's another you know, courtroom battle. Like, I think it's something that, that Cretton will leave his own mark on. And I'm really excited to see that. Yeah, I feel similarly. I, and, and I know that the true story off of which it's based is really heartbreaking and, uh, um, very much speaks to the world that we live in today. So, um, I'm super curious to see how that one turns out. And if you don't give a shit about any of that, just it's the director of Shang-Chi people. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, first, is, everything is, revolves around superheroes. It's the Shang Chi director, starring Killmonger and Captain Marvel. Yeah, that's it, and and Electro <laughs> yeah. about racial injustice. Hey, however you get people into the theater, man, I don't care. Actually, that's not true. I do care, and we'll get to that. I think we should probably get to the Joker of it all, shouldn't we? Uh, eventually, eventually, like that's going to probably right, let's be. Let's talk a... about Joker. So Joker is playing at at. TIFF. It's already played Venice. Um, it's already screened for select critics. Um, there's a video review on the, on the site. If you want to see that, um, I rarely look at reviews, other reviews before I write my own, but my curiosity factor on Joker is so high that I read, ended up reading, uh, what David Ehrlich at IndieWire had to say and Jermaine Lussier at IO9 had to say. Um, and that's, and then I cut myself off, even though there are other people who, uh, whose writing I like that I wanted to see. I'll just sit on that and wait but um i just i've got a i just you know i i already have a lot of feelings about joker but i don't want to indulge them because i feel like that's setting off the trap of talking about a movie without seeing it and i think we can look at what joker is like from the marketing about what it's trying to do um but I don't want to be like Joker is X or Joker does Y without seeing the film. To me, you have to pray the price of admission and sit down with the film and watch it before you have an opinion. Those are the rules. Yeah, that's I. I was the same way. I, and this is one of those movies I just really wish we were getting the world premiere at TIFF because it. It. I don't love going in with preconceived notions like yeah, this. I did. Um, same. While also acknowledging that we are in an extremely privileged position of being able to go into these movies completely cold. Uh, yeah, by the time October rolls around, holy shit. It's going to be bad. And we promise to try to not be insufferable about it. Because one of my pet peeves is also is people talking about having very strong opinions about movies they have not seen. Mm-hmm. Even if you feel pretty confident in, the mov- in what the movie's about or you've read a lot of different reviews and reactions – those are all from people who have seen the movie and have formed their own opinions. And you're bringing all you're bringing to the table are your own preconceived biases and preconceived notions of uh, what you think it is or is not going to be. And we're all guilty of that. And I, you know, as someone who's not a huge fan of Todd Phillips, like it, the the reviews kind of felt like, yep, that probably what a Todd Phillips Joker movie's like. But I still want to go into the movie as open minded as I can be. And uh, you know, I'm absolutely willing for this movie to blow me away and for me to love it for you know i i am open to the possibility that is it will be my favorite film of the year and i think that's uh, that's how you have to go into movies like this yeah i it's mean they, 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 the noise right. on this one it is there's a lot of noise surrounding it and that's again one of the advantages of sundance is there is no noise 
Yeah. There's no noise other than what other people are saying. Um, and sometimes people, I think, manufacture noise at Sundance and say, oh, you have to see this movie. And then you go see it and you're like, what was that shit? That's just you. That's just ego right there. But at least there's not like a marketing machine in place. Um, jo- uh, Joker is the kind of film that would never play at Sundance. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so a, a film like Joker is it's hard not to have any opinion on it. If you like work in our lot, you know, in our field where we have to cover the casting and then, and the, you know, when Mark Maron says, it's not your average kind of superhero film or whatever the fuck. And, you know, and then Mark they're Maron went on Conan and was straight up like, I don't like these comic book movies. They're stupid. I got some <laughs> bad was... news for you, Mark. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and then, and then you see the trailers, like, again, it's hard to escape all of that, but you go, you do your best to, to set, those biases aside. Um, you do your best to give the film the benefit of the doubt and both ways, both ways, if, even if for a film that you're dreading or like a film like Just Mercy, a film that you're excited for. You yeah. you go in and you don't try to, because I've seen people fall both ways. I see people who have gotten so excited for a movie that they couldn't acknowledge at first that the movie was not good. I mean, you saw that I think you've never seen that more widespread than the Phantom Menace. That was about yeah. 30 solid years of, or 20, 25 years of, um, gosh, 77. No, it's good actually. Yeah. No, like people come out of Phantom Menace and like, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, Jar Jar is a little rough, but for the most part, I mean, did you see that lightsaber fight? And then like, so you're like, oh no, that film's bad. Um, <laughs> and and by, by the same token, you know, you don't want to get into a place where, you refuse to allow for the possibility that the movie can surprise you and be good. Um, I remember going into the first Fantastic Four film, the Tim Story one, thinking like, oh, this is going to be fucking abysmal. And I thought it, I found it fairly enjoyable for what it was. Um, you know, I, I think you just have to give movies a chance um, and try to block out all the noise that seeks to influence you as you go into them. Well, and last year, you and I went into The Predator as big Shane Black fans, and we had heard the bad buzz, and we were like, yeah, I want to see for myself, and came out like, oh, that wasn't good. Yeah, oh, the bad buzz was was correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we were both like, maybe I'll like it. Maybe, maybe you know, it'll work for me. Right, and that's the thing. Like, you kind of have to, and that's the thing. Like, again, it's, it's just good to form your own opinion on these things, because that way, once you form your own opinion, you can be part of the conversation. But if you're someone who wants to be part of the conversation... Um, because you saw a trailer, that's not good enough. And I'm sorry, your time is not that valuable. You're not, you know, if your time is value, if your time isn't valuable enough that you can fart out an opinion on Twitter, you have time to watch a two hour movie. You just yeah. do. Um, if you, if you weren't busy, you wouldn't be on Twitter. I know I'm not that busy and I'm on Twitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about some other films. What other films are you, are you really looking forward to at TIFF? I mean, I was already really interested in Marriage Story, but the reviews for Marriage Story have gotten me even more excited for that one. I feel um, like Marriage Story is going to – I, I, I mean, we're both children of divorce. Yeah. So I feel like Marriage Story, especially now that I'm married, is going to fucking wreck me. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like it's one thing to watch Kramer versus Kramer uh, when I was like 11 or 12, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like my life. That's pretty sad, and it made me sad. But it's another thing for you and I are both in uh, you know, extremely – long-term relationships you're married i'm engaged and to go into it thinking like you know half of all marriages end in divorce and this could be you and this is what uh happens to human beings and how does love go south and what happens when there's a kid involved um it's just a bummer uh and i'm very excited for it I yeah no i'm super excited for it but also the fact that i feel like um noah bombach i tend to like his his earlier films did not really work for me that much. I didn't like Greenberg. I didn't like uh, Margot at the Wedding that much. But uh, once we get to like Francis Ha, like and it, the, then it really starts. His stuff really starts clicking for me. And I've liked, um, oh gosh, the name. What was the one of the one with Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts? Oh, uh, while we're young. While we're That's young, good. I thought that was really good. I thought the Meyerowitz stories was really good. Yeah. Um, so he's just getting better and better with every film. Uh, not, and he was already pretty great. And this one is like, uh, you know, a lot of people have pointed out like Squid and the Whale, which is a film that didn't really work for me when I saw it in, in college. <laughs> the book. 
Jesse Eisenberg in the book. Yeah. I, I think I think about the younger brother smearing semen on lockers. I'm like, that shit doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Screen the Whale, but like, you know, that's his first film to deal with divorce. But now this is from, that film is kind of from the perspective of the kids. And this one's from the perspective of the, of the parents. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I, I wish the screening wasn't at 8.45 a.m. That's too fucking yeah. early for marriage story, but you have to kind of just deal. Yeah, I think you and I both did uh, A Star is Born at 8.45 a.m. in the same theater last year, and it was a similar kind of deal where we were just emotionally wrecked for the rest of the day. I I think I wasn't as emotionally wrecked as you because I knew what was going to happen because oh, yeah, yeah. I had seen all yeah. the previous versions. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is going to happen. And you were like, what? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Oh, that did not go the way I thought. Um, but I'm also excited for the year of Adam Driver. I mean, you and I have both seen The Report, and he's tremendous in The Report. Um, he's got Star Wars, and then Marriage Story is garnering, like, insane Oscar buzz for his performance. Do you think uh, he might cancel himself out? So we've seen The Report. I don't think you can submit him as best supporting for Report. No. He drives all the action. Yeah. And from what it sounds like, you can't submit him for best supporting for Marriage Story. What's interesting to me is Marriage Story is Netflix and the report is Amazon's one and only major Oscar contender this year. So and like usually in that scenario, the studios work with the actors teams to kind of figure out the best uh, way forward. Uh, Kind of how Kate Winslet uh, with Revolutionary Road and The Reader. I think she went supporting for Revolutionary Road, if I'm not mistaken, um, and then went lead for the reader which was insane uh and one which was also insane um but i'm curious to see what happens i'm interested the report played at telluride recently and did not like the response was positive but it didn't really overwhelm anyone so i'm curious to see if it gets another boost here at tiff um or if that movie kind of is more of like a screenplay uh one and done uh, player, um, or maybe best picture in terms of acting. I mean, again, I haven't seen it yet, but based on the responses that I've seen, especially from people who have seen both films, it sounds like marriage story is the one because they're not just saying like, Oh, he's a contender for best actor. They're saying like, uh, he's the front runner to win. Although it should be said at this point last year, me and every other Oscar prognosticator was like, is there any way a star is born doesn't get five nominations and best actor, director, actress, and picture and win them all. So I mean, what studio could fuck this up so tremendously (laughs) that they would lose to Bohemian Rhapsody for in a music (laughs) for music films? Oh, God. Yeah, that doesn't seem possible. But then the Oscars. It is. I'm very excited for Marriage Story. And I'm curious to see. I think Bumbach played really interestingly with structure in Myrid stories. And they released those dual teaser trailers from Marriage Story from both the husband and the wife perspective. So I'm curious to see if there's some kind of structure trick in the mo- in the movie or if that was just part of the marketing. Mm, yeah. Um, a film that I'm really looking forward to um, is uh, Harriet. Yeah. Because I've been a Cassie Lemons fan for a while now. And uh, it just it kind of amazes me there hasn't been like a prestige Harriet Tubman movie. And this one stars uh, Cynthia Erivo, who had a huge year last year between Widows and Bad Times at the El Royale. Uh, huge in that we loved her performances. No one fucking saw those movies because 20th Century Fox was circling the drain. Yeah. Get, getting ready to be sold off and just, I guess, didn't bother to sell them. Um, but they're great films. You should see them. Check them out. I think they're both they on HBO right now. Um, but to see Cynthia Erivo as, you know, an icon and a towering historical figure like Harriet Tubman, who is just not only instrumental in the Underground Railroad, but also instrumental in the Civil War, working as a spy for the Union. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of great material to work with there. And I think having Cassie Lemons, who who previously directed Eve's Bayou and Talk to Me, um, I'm really excited what she wants, what she's going to do with that. Yeah, I just hope it's not kind of like a by the numbers biopic. That's that's my concern. That is my concern. Is it a by the numbers biopic? And yet, I can kind of allow for that in some instances. You know, like on the one hand, like yes, there's room to always play with the form and do those kind of things. But then I think there's something also to be said. Like if you want to invite people into this story, sometimes you have to meet them on their level, and their level is I need a regular ass biopic. 
And so a film they would not, they wouldn't, for an audience that wouldn't, nece- that wouldn't necessarily go see, I'm not, uh, I'm not there because it's a bio- Bob Dylan biopic, but not really because it's six actors playing him and it's really weird. And what is this movie? I think something like Harriet, like if it, if it gets people to, to into the theater and gets them wanting to learn more about Harriet Tubman, I'm kind of willing to make that trade. Um, not to let, not to like say, oh, I'm going to go easy on it, but I feel like there are certain films where you have to kind of keep your audience in mind and say, what is my audience ready for? Yeah. The audience is ready for Bohemian Rhapsody. That, yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> for lies, lies, and more lies. They, they are ready. That's, well, that's the thing. They're ready for the familiar, comfortable thing. So they'll happily go out and see, like, people love the music of, you know, Elton John and Queen, but they're going to go see Bohemian Rhapsody because it's PG-13 and it plays a comforting lie and it gives them, you know, oh, I, I like that song. Whereas, you know, Rocket Man is a much weirder film. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see how it plays, but uh, I'm I'm excited for it. Nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. What else? Let's let's do let's each do one more because we could keep going with what are you excited for? What are you excited? Because you'll we'll each do one more and then we'll move on to uh, to recently watched. I mean, I'm psyched for the laundromat just because I'm a Soderbergh nut and it looks kind of insane. It looks like it's the just, informant. It's it looks like the informant, but you got Meryl Streep to do it. I know, right? It's just crazy. Uh, the speed with which he works, the um, effectiveness of the screenplays that he works with. And uh, kind of the breezy way that he shoots his movies is just on another level. No one is making movies like he is and no one is making movies that are so consistently delightful and watchable and enjoyable as he is. Um, And with the speed, like the speed is nuts. Like he already released High Flying Bird earlier this year and now he's releasing The Laundromat. Uh, And he's already shooting another movie with Meryl Streep right now. When you're Um, basically the director is also the cinematographer and the editor – like you can move faster yeah yeah you can do whatever you want uh i don't know a ton about the panama papers but uh i'm excited to kind of see what this movie reveals about them it's written by scott z burns who wrote and directed the report um but also wrote the informant uh and side effects which i didn't love um i think he was trying something with side effects that didn't work but what i like about soderbergh is that he tries things and when they fail he doesn't get bogged down by it uh, nor does, nor does he really try to defend them that much. He's like, ah, oh, that didn't work and just acknowledges yeah. it and moves on. Yeah. He's like, ah, oh, okay, I'll do something else now. Um, and as someone who loved Logan Lucky, I'm just really excited to see, uh, Gary Oldman putting on a real thick accent. Yes. <laughs> that looks like fun. Yeah. Um, so for me, a film that I'm really looking forward to is uh, Jojo rabbit, which is the new Taika Waititi film. Uh, which is he's it's being billed as an anti-hate satire. And the plot of the film is that it takes place in Nazi Germany, follows a Hitler youth whose imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler, played by Taika Waititi. And then the young boy discovers that his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, is hiding uh, a young Jewish girl, played by uh, Leave No Traces, Thomas and McKenzie, hiding her in the attic. Um, and I... I'm, I think it looks really timely and relevant, but also super dark, super funny and darkly comic in all the ways that I enjoy. Um, yeah. I think now is more than ever, we need to laugh at Nazis and make them feel bad and make them go away. Um, so if belittling them and their philosophy and their, you know, their sort of love of fascism go, you know, needs to be taken down a peg and Taika Waititi wants to step up and do it, I will more than happily watch what he does with that. Yeah. Uh, I think that it looks delightful. He's also another filmmaker who's working really quickly. Uh, he made Jojo Rabbit directly after Thor Ragnarok, and now he's making like a small sports movie before he makes Thor 4. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, same here. So, yeah, there's a lot to see at TIFF. We, we will be, like Adam said, cranking out a ton of TIFF material. Reviews, interviews, features, um, there's just going to be a ton of stuff coming out of TIFF. So definitely keep keep it tuned to Collider.com for, for a ton of TIFF coverage. And follow us on Twitter for our live reactions to things that we're not reviewing. Yeah. So. Usually mine will be some some bullshit like Just Mercy showed more than Mercy, zero stars. Some, some yeah. bullshit like that. I'll probably Checks tweet out. exactly that. <laughs> Checks out. Knives out, not enough knives, zero stars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to Recently Watched. What have you seen lately? 
so in preparation so in preparation for two things uh i'm trying to fill in some scorsese gaps before the irishman later this year so we can do a big scorsese pod uh and trying to watch the films of his that i haven't seen and because joker looks like a ripoff of the king of comedy uh i had never seen the king of comedy so i decided to watch the king of comedy and the king of comedy is a very good movie uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, released in 1983, starring Robert 80, De Niro. 82. 82? Oh, I thought it was 83. Yeah, doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, um, Robert De Niro plays Rupert Pupkin, who is, quote-unquote, an aspiring stand-up comedian, but is really just kind of obsessed with a guy named Jerry Langford, who is basically Johnny Carson at this point. Uh, I guess the, like, today parallel would be, like, jimmy fallon kind of um but yeah kind of a toothless but popular late night talk show host yeah yeah so he's obsessed with him he weasels his way into his car one night and uh you know pitches him says you know like i want to be a stand-up comedian how do i do it uh you know how do i get my launch get my start uh can i be on your show and you know jerry just kind of waves him off and says you know call my office we'll set a lunch up or something like that uh just wants to get him away and uh de niro's character spends the rest of the movie trying to get in touch with jerry trying and fantasizing these conversations and meetings and lunches uh that he's having with jerry and they're really brilliantly um visualized by scorsese because they don't it's not like the wayne's world thing where it goes um it cuts directly into a fantasy to the point that at the kind of initially you're not entirely sure that it is a fantasy and then you realize oh okay we're in rupert's head this is kind of what he's imagining happening and then some of his dialogue later in the film in the real world makes a lot of sense because you've been in in his head and you know what he has been imagining has been happening uh he's clearly a mentally unwell individual but Largely, the film speaks to – I mean, it's very strange that this film feels really relevant to the world of 2019 uh, as it tackles issues of fame and hero worship and the idea that you can become famous without technically being successful or talented. Um, it's really interesting and really well done. Uh, it's funny, but it's darkly funny. Um, and you can see some pretty, like, even just by looking at the trailers of Joker, you can see some really direct parallels in that movie. Uh, King of Comedy was not a success for Scorsese. It didn't make very much money. I think the reviews were pretty positive, but, uh, it wasn't one of his more, um, successful films. It's a film that took a little while to kind of catch on with people, but I believe it's available on Amazon Prime right now. It so, is. You, yeah, so if you haven't seen it, I highly suggest watching it because it, it holds up tremendously well and scarily well. Yeah, I, I recently rewatched it uh, in preparation for Joker, and I think it's it definitely has a lot of parallels to to our current world. I also feel like it's kind of in a weird way, like a kind of a companion piece to taxi driver, not just because of the Scorsese um, Robert De Niro pairing, but because both characters sort of live inside their own heads and sort of dream of glory. But whereas Travis Bickle kind of wants to exterminate the filth from the world and sees himself as an avenging hero. um, Rupert Pupkin sees himself as uh, a heroic, you know, entertainer, like, but they're both obsessed with their sort of own renown um, and getting lost in these dark fantasy worlds. Um, but I think King of Comedy is incredibly relevant um, and, and definitely worth seeking out. Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, earlier today, I watched Dolomite in preparation for Dolomite is My Name, which is about the making of that film. It stars Eddie Murphy, uh, directed by Craig Brewer. Um, and Dolomite is a... 1970s black exploitation film. It's about a guy named Dolomite who's a pimp and a nightclub owner who gets released from prison uh, to take down this gangster. Um, and Dolomite gets out and he also wants revenge because this gangster is responsible for killing the friend of, you know, the friend of a friend. And, you know, he wants revenge for that. And he's going to do it because with, with his army of prostitutes that also know Kung Fu. Um it is a very silly movie. It, it basically, to me, is kind of like the best and the worst that black exploitation movies have to offer, which is that on the pro side, it's, you know, it's very black power. Um, you know, it lets these characters, you know, 
take down corrupt, you know, white cops and uh, corrupt white politicians and really lets them be the stars in a fun sort of action-packed way. On the downside, it is incompetently made. Just not even remotely, like amateurish would be a compliment. Um, just weird, just no not knowledge of the storytelling language of film. But again, it's it was a hit in its time. I would just say, if you're looking for black exploitation films, I wouldn't necessarily start with Dolomite. I think because it might turn you off. Because again, like has the best and the worst. I would see some. I would seek out more like something like Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song or Shaft or Foxy Brown. Um, and then like Dolomite, you can you know I don't want to say don't see Dolomite. You can see it right now on Amazon Prime. It's 90 minutes. Um, but just be aware that Dolomite really wanders. It is not a plot-driven film by any stretch. Like an hour into the film, it's like, hey, what if we just give Dolomite a musical number? And Rudy Ray Moore, who plays Dolomite, just starts singing about, <laughs> you know, kicking ass. And it's entertaining for what it is, but it also, because it has no structure or no momentum, it can kind of feel aimless despite its short runtime. So uh, I'm glad I've seen it now. I feel better prepared to to write about Dolomite as my name. Interesting. Um, all right, let's move on to reader hot takes. So for this, for those who don't know, um, if you like the show, we ask that you leave us a positive review on iTunes because it helps other people find the show. But when you leave your positive review, we want you to leave a, a hot take, your hottest take about films, and then we will engage with it. So uh, our hot take this week uh, comes from DZuck89 and his hot take or her hot take is for, uh, the best movies of the last three years are as follows. Wind River, Searching, and although none of you have probably watched it, and I cannot believe I actually loved a movie on this platform, Netflix's Paddleton. Mic drop. Um, I can't say anything about Paddleton and Searching. I haven't seen them yet. <laughs> I haven't either. I haven't seen them. I've heard of them. I haven't seen them. Uh, Wind River, I thought was, you know, we, that we saw that at Sundance. Um I thought it was all right. And I thought Wind River was all right. I didn't think it was as strong as Hell or High Water. Um, but I thought it was interesting. And I like the fact that Taylor Sheridan wants to tell stories. Um, he has personal experience with uh, Native American reservations and life on the reservation and sort of what that's, you know, I think the story of Native Americans is something that we kind of leave in the past. It's like cowboys and, and, and Indians. That's what it is. And like, they don't get to exist in the present day. And so the fact that Wind River seeks to tell what that looks like in the present day about they don't have really have their own police force. They don't, you know, what happens when a crime is committed? Like these sort of really fun, you know, basic questions of what is life like out on a, on a reservation, um, I think is worth telling. And I think he, he, wraps it in kind of a crime thriller noir to, to great effect. Yeah. I was pretty impressed by it as well. I really liked the score, um, by gosh, I'm blanking on the Nick cave, uh, and Warren Ellis, I think, mm. um, I thought the score of that movie was really good, but, uh, yeah, it was all right. It's not a movie I've thought about much afterwards, but, uh, I thought it was structured pretty well and, uh, handsomely crafted and well acted. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for leaving us your feedback. Uh, again, if you want to, you know, review this podcast on iTunes, just leave us your hottest film or TV related take and we will engage with it. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time. <laughs>